Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome to Prophecy Today. We're back home here at Broadcast Central, Chattanooga, Tennessee. We're behind the microphone and ready to go with our broadcast partners. We've got six of them standing by. One of them, Sam Rohr, a legislator in Pennsylvania for over 20 years, and now he is the host of Stand in the Gap Today. It's radio and television. He's going to come giving us some highlights about the State of the Union message, and then we'll talk just briefly about what the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, did at the end of that State of the Union address by the President. And then Ed Decker is going to join us, give us some information about Mitt Romney that you may not have heard. He said he was dedicated to his God, and that's why he made his vote decision. But Mitt Romney believes he will become a God. You do not want to miss that conversation. Well, right now we're going to go to Ken Timmerman. He's the man who covers geopolitical activities around the world, key in our broadcasting team, and so great to bring Ken on. Ken, actually, as I look at the list of questions I want to direct to you, it looks like a Middle East news update, but that's just the way things are working out. And uh, first of all, just a quick statement about the State of the Union message. We'll get to Sam Rohr when he talks about it more in depth. But what were your observations? Well, I thought it was actually a pretty strong speech, and the president has a lot of positive achievements to run his reelection campaign on. And I think the Democrats are really in a bind because they're running on the economy is bad. Nobody is benefiting. America is horrible. That's their platform. <laughs> so I, I think the president has got a winning, uh, a winning platform and achievements that are really unusual and striking uh, compared to his predecessors. Absolutely amazing, the stuff that he's accomplished with all of the opposition that he's encountered. Very interesting thoughts. Stay tuned for what Sam Rohr brings to the table as well. Well, in that State of the Union address, he brought out his support for the State of Israel. However, at the same time, the Palestinians, without reading the peace plan, are seeking support from the United Nations to reject the Trump peace plan. Palestinians and the United Nations, quite an interesting team, aren't they? Well, the United Nations has consistently uh, supported the Palestinians against Israel, has consistently passed resolutions condemning Israel for everything under the sun. You know, if the crops fail in Sudan, it must be the fault of the Jews, uh, <laughs> and, and on and on. Look, they're going to come to the U.N. on February 11th, which is the 41st anniversary of the Iranian Revolution, just ironically. And Mahmoud Abbas, the unelected president, I mean, he was elected once and has stayed in office uh, ever since that election uh, eight years ago. Mahmoud Abbas is going to come and introduce this resolution condemning Israel, condemning the United States, rejecting this peace plan, and probably the General Assembly will go along with him. That's what's so extraordinary about the United Nations. Up until President Trump, we were paying something like 40% of all U.N. dues. Now it's around 25%. And yet we are surrounded at U.N. headquarters in New York by a conjuries of nations who seek our demise and the demise of the state of Israel. It's really quite extraordinary 
you would think they would have something better to do, like perhaps uh, improving their own economies rather than coming to New York and banging their tin cups. I really pity the Palestinian people who wish a good future for their children, a prosperous future for their children. They have been so ill-served by this crop of venomous leaders. Uh, it's, It's a shame. And at the same time, Iran is encouraging the Palestinians to bring up and get involved in a jihad against Israel after what has been going on with the presentation of the Trump peace plan, the Supreme Leader saying, this is what you need to do. So it's not going to be a kind of a uh, operation that some of the Palestinian people really want. They want coexistence. You know, it, it, it's, it always amazes me how the Supreme Leader of the Islamic State of Iran is more Palestinian than the Palestinians. How he is, he is hoping that uh, they will, uh, he's urging them to die for Iran to the last Palestinian. Fight for Iran and fight against this peace plan which Iran opposes to the blood of the last Palestinian. Uh, Khamenei does this regularly, uh, the Supreme Leader of Iran. Uh, he will call on the Palestinians, he'll call on the Syrians, he'll call on the Lebanese to do his bidding. Uh, he will send the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps to Syria and Lebanon to try and reinforce these local militias. Now he's working with Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. He welcomed them to Tehran uh, over the past week to uh, bolster their opposition to this peace plan. Uh, The Iranians will do uh, every bit, um, uh, everything that they can to oppose it, but I do not believe they will, in in the near future at least, I do not believe they will unleash those 150,000 missiles that they've got bracketed on Israel from Lebanon, from Syria, and from Gaza, because they know the price that they will pay in response will be too high. Looks like uh, the leader of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, is doing everything he can to organize against this Trump peace plan for the Middle East. He's got now involved a coalition of all the Islamic states, the OIC. By the way, explain to our listeners, the OIC, what their operation is and why they are rejecting the Trump peace plan. Well, you have two groups. The Organization of the Islamic Conference, uh, the OIC, which is 57 Muslim nations across the world. So you have countries like uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, who are are part of it. And then you have the Arab League, which is a smaller uh, 22-state group of just the Arab countries. Both of them held meetings over the past uh, week and a half to denounce the Trump peace plan. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, quite, quite interesting to see, especially in the Arab League, that the Saudis and the Emiratis, the Kuwaitis, the so-called moderate Gulf states, and Jordan and Egypt were not able to hold the line against some of the votes of the smaller countries, Sudan and others, and that the Arab League actually voted against this peace plan, whereas the Saudis and the others had been saying positive things about it at first. So what it says to me, Jimmy, is that you've still got this um, kind of popular sentiment against Israel in the Arab street. That's what the Saudis are giving into. Uh, They fear that their political leadership may be out in front of public opinion in the Arab world. And that seems pretty evident in Iran itself, where 
the young people, the youth of Iran, who I thought were rebelling against the supreme leader, uh, they were seen praising him and singing about Israel's demise in the future. Give us an update well, on me, that. Let me caution you about reports of that sort, Jimmy. Uh, you see them uh, every day on Iranian state media. You know, the government constantly puts out its propaganda to make people believe that they have the support of the people. I think a far better uh, gauge of the sentiment of the Iranian people are the YouTube and Instagram videos that have come out, that came out after the killing of Qasem Soleimani, uh, and that famous video, now famous video, where students refused to step on the American and Israeli flag. Uh, those, I think, are far more authentic than these state-sponsored propaganda pieces. You were talking about Soleimani being assassinated. Uh, let me ask a question. Our old buddy over there in Turkey, Tayyip Erdogan, uh, says uh, that he has something to gain. I wonder what does he have to gain after Soleimani's assassination? Well, I think Erdogan may see an opening for him because uh, the killing of Qasem Soleimani inevitably is going to weaken Iran's overseas operations. It's going to weaken them in Iraq. It's going to weaken them in Syria and in Lebanon because he had a, a really pretty extensive personal uh, connection with all of those operations. He was personally in charge of them. And Esmail Ghani, the new man who replaced him, uh, does not have all of those personal contacts. It's not sure if he's got keys to all the bank accounts either. And that's going to be something uh, we have to keep our eyes on in the coming weeks. But I, I can see Erdogan um, trying to enhance his position in Syria, um, enhance his position in places like Libya, uh, where he is playing um, you know, on behalf of the jihadi government in Tripoli against the Russians. Uh, ironically enough, who are supporting Haftar. Uh, so I, I think Erdogan is, again, just going to try to uh, take a little away from what Iran is, has um, their position on the ground. Can we have just a second? We've not mentioned Vladimir Putin and Russia yet, but it looks like Putin is pushing for leadership in Africa. Just quickly, what do you think about that? Well, they're going back to the Cold World War, where uh, Russia was a big uh, uh, arms salesmen. They had uh, mercenaries overseas, in that case KGB. They're doing it again. They're doing it in South Africa, in the Central African Republic, and other places. But they're really competing now, not with us so much, but with the Chinese. And the Chinese, and the fact is, they want a piece of Africa. The United States had better be awake on this situation, had they not? <laughs> well, uh, we are. I mean, we are playing in, in other parts of Africa. But uh, the Russians are moving in. The Chinese have already been moving in for the past 15 years, and it's a very different world there than it was, say, uh, during the time of Ronald Reagan. Absolutely. Ken Timmerman, the man who covers geopolitical activities for us around the world, we so appreciate his time to be able to give us these analyses of what is happening. Ken, thank you so very much. We'll talk again real soon. Thank you, Jimmy. Always a pleasure. God bless. We're going to take a break. David Dolan standing by. He's got a Middle East news update for us. Sam Rohr, a legislator in Pennsylvania for over 20 years. And then Ed Decker is going to join us. Give us some information about Mitt Romney that you may not have heard. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today.
Prophecy Today is heard all across the USA on the Prophecy Today radio network, but also it is heard around the world through our website at prophecytoday.com. And Jay, there are many other features on our prophecytoday.com website, like daily news updated out of the Middle East as it pertains to what's happening prophetically. Special reports can be heard right on our website at prophecytoday.com. We have Prophecy Q&A available for you. Questions asked in the past can be answered on the website if you just check it out and go to that particular spot. Prophecy Quiz is available, and parts of our Prophecy Today program, if you should miss any part of it, will be heard the next week right here at prophecytoday.com. And don't forget, you can even email your questions to us for our live radio broadcast. Just go to our website at prophecytoday.com. You'll be amazed, you'll be surprised at what you'll find on our website. Be sure to visit us at prophecytoday.com on the World Wide Web. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today, and as I promised, David Dolan's standing by. He's got his Middle East news update. You do not want to miss that. Want to give you a programming update. We're going to have Ed Decker. He's going to join me. He has some very interesting background information about Mitt Romney who said he had dedicated his vote there in the impeachment vote in the Senate uh, to God. But yet, according to Ed Decker, Romney believes he will become a God. You need to hear that conversation. Don't go very far away from the radio. That's upcoming in our next half hour of broadcasting here at prophecytoday.com. But let's get to David Dolan right now. David, Palestinian violence in a battle to overthrow the Trump peace plan taking place at the Gaza Strip, and I guess they're on the Temple Mount for the Friday Sabbath day as it relates to the Muslim people. What can you give us in a report? Well, yes, Jimmy, the last three days actually have looked very much like the days of the first and second Palestinian uprisings, the Arabs call the Intifadas. Uh, as you know, I covered both of those for CBS radio network here in the States, and it was very similar on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, where we had widespread violence. We had clashes in the Gaza Strip. We had the clashes, as you said, in Jerusalem. Palestinian driver rammed into a group of Israeli soldiers, young recruits actually in the Golani Brigade, and 12 were wounded, one seriously 
in that attack. The Israelis found the driver later on and arrested him. But there were clashes south of Jerusalem. There were clashes in several uh, Arab towns north of Jerusalem. Israeli troops on Thursday went in to stop some rioting in Jenin, and they were fiercely resisted. They said some soldiers were wounded there. Two Palestinians were shot dead, one there and one in another location, and on Friday down in the Gaza Strip, where the incendiary balloons continued. On Friday, we had four more sent into Israeli territory, set alight, uh, designed to kill. And the Israelis are, from what I'm understanding, Jimmy, planning a fairly major operation against Hamas and Islamic Jihad in the Gaza Strip, both groups actively supporting this round of terror, calling for more uh, violence around the area. And the Israelis are warning that uh, they're listening, and uh, they don't know that they're ordering the particular attacks, but they are openly ordering their people, the Palestinian people, to riot, to cause trouble. And, Jimmy, two busloads of Israeli Arabs from the north of Israel were on their way to the Temple Mount on Friday, and the buses were stopped, boarded, and then turned around after the security services got information that they were planning to stage a major riot up on the Temple Mount. Of course, also on Thursday, an Israeli officer, police officer, was shot in the arm right outside of the Temple Mount. He was guarding the area, and uh, other police officers quickly shot dead the Palestinian that did that. So all sorts of incidents. It's continuing and, again, looking very, very much like the days of the first and second uprisings. Whether it will carry on to that degree or not, we're not sure. But uh, the Israelis did announce on Friday another battalion of soldiers are being sent into Judea and Samaria. They're at intersections. They're guarding the towns and cities in anticipation of further violence, again, all triggered supposedly by the peace plan that the Palestinians have totally rejected. Nothing's been done about that on the ground, but uh, this is their uh, initial response, apparently. Yeah, how ironic. Here's a peace plan that's being offered, and it looks to me like there are a number of benefits for the Palestinian people in the plan and I do not understand why they do not. They, and in fact, the leadership of the Palestinians calling for the people to shed their blood and their spirits in a fight against this peace plan. In fact, Palestinians gathering right now United Nations support to reject the Trump peace plan. United Nations and the Palestinians have been partners for a number of years, haven't they? They have, Jimmy, and of course, many Palestinians live off of U.N. Uh, aid. They're considered refugees, even though many are just maybe even the grandson or daughter of a, of a refugee. They themselves uh, didn't move anywhere, didn't uh, travel anywhere. They're in the homes they were born in, but they still get a lot of aid from the U.N. And, Jimmy, the plan's already been rejected by the European Union. I mentioned last week that if they rejected it totally, that would probably doom it. Uh, that has happened. Russia has strongly rejected it, issued more statements. And by the way, Jimmy, the Russians said that a civilian aircraft was nearly shot down as it was landing at Damascus Airport after Israel launched an airstrike against Iranian positions in the area on Wednesday evening. Uh, the plane was diverted, an Airbus plane with 100 and 
20 passengers, I think it was, something like that on it, was diverted to the Russian Air Force base nearby where it landed. And the Russians say this is occurring regularly, and they said they will not allow Israel to continue to carry out these strikes against Iran and its allies in Syria. So that's another ominous development. And uh, the peace plan doesn't look like it's going anywhere soon. Of course, the Israelis have promised not to act upon any part of it until after the election, including, I mentioned, the Prime Minister wanted to annex the Jewish suburb of Male Adumim outside of Jerusalem, just east of Jerusalem on the road to the Dead Sea. But the Prime Minister has dropped that intention at present after the U.S. made clear they didn't want to see anything happen right now. So nothing is actually going on, but the response is happening, and it is mostly a violent one. David, I have been reading information that uh, the Israeli Arabs, and I want you to take just a moment to explain the difference between the Israeli Arabs and the Palestinian people. The Israeli Arabs are opposed to the Trump peace plan because they see the possibility of Israeli Arab land being given to these radical Palestinians. What's the difference between the two peoples in the Arab world? Well, there's about a million Arabs that are citizens of Israel. Uh, we call them Arab Israelis. They call themselves Israeli Palestinians or Palestinian Israelis. Uh, they mostly live in the Triangle area. That's in the north of the country, where there are three large Arab towns near each other that sort of form a triangle on a map. And the peace plan includes the possibility, this is, of course, is all open for negotiation, but of those areas joining in a new Palestinian state, leaving Israel and joining a Palestinian state. And the Israeli government has agreed to this uh, proposal. It's the Palestinians or the Arab Israelis, as you say, that are objecting and objecting quite strongly. Uh, several of their leaders said, no way do we want to, uh, frankly, lose the rights and privileges we have, the freedoms we have as part of a modern democratic society, Israel, and become part of a Palestinian state. Well, they've been watching what the PA has done in Judea and Samaria, or not done, as the case may be. There are no press freedoms. Uh, people can be arrested for no reason. Uh, students are often rounded up for their opinions. Of course, the Gaza Strip is even worse. It's under Islamic fundamentalist rule. Hamas and Islamic Jihad call the day. All the women, Palestinian Christian women including, have to wear veils, have to cover themselves completely as if they were uh, Orthodox Muslims, which they're not. Many of the Arabs, and I've known this for years, uh, just talking with them, they don't want to become part of any Palestinian state. They want to remain citizens of Israel. They want the freedom to travel like they have now, all of those sorts of things. So they're voting with their feet, as it were, against a Palestinian state. And frankly, a lot of Palestinians in Judea and Samaria they would secretly, Jimmy, they don't say it out loud, but they would secretly love to see Israel annex the entire area and rule over them simply because they trust the Israelis to be fair and to not commit crimes against them or whatever. They don't trust their Palestinian leaders in the same way. Well, as I understand it, the Israeli Arabs became a part of citizens of the state of Israel back at the beginning, I think, around 1948, when a number of these peoples wanted to take down this Jewish state. 
The Israeli Arabs understood that was not going to happen, so they decided to be a part of the Israeli state. And then the others, either they went across the Jordan River over into Jordan to wait to have Israel wiped off the face of the earth. So they're two different peoples, and the Israeli Arabs even have the responsibility of voting and electing their representatives in the Knesset. That seems to be the case, doesn't it? Well, it is. There are currently 12 Arab representatives in the Knesset, voted in by Arab people, uh, the citizens of Israel, and they like that right. But those leaders, Jimmy, tend to be pretty radical. They tend to use the same lines against Israel that Hamas and Islamic Jihad do, for the most part. Not not all of them, but most of them do that. And many (laughs) of the people that vote for them say, you're not representing me. We want to be part of Israel. We want to live in peace. We don't want this conflict to continue. Curb your rhetoric, but they don't do that for the most part. David Dolan, the man who covers the Middle East for us, He's been doing that for over 30 years for different broadcast organizations. We're so thrilled he's a part of our team here on Prophecy Today. Hey, David, thank you so much for the report. We'll talk again next week. You're welcome, Jimmy, and God bless. We're going to take a break. When we come back, John Rood standing by. He has a report on the European Union, an update for us. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. How do you like your news? You know, Jimmy, folks are listening to the news every single day, but sometimes they're getting that liberal bent, and we want them to have a different look at the news. Jay, that's correct. I have listened to ABC, CBS, and NBC when I returned from Jerusalem back to the United States, having just witnessed a news event in the Middle East, and hear the commentators over here speaking something almost different. That's why I write the Until Newsletter, and it takes the leading news stories of the month. I give the absolute truth behind all the details in those headlines, and then we look at it from a prophetic perspective. I want to give you the insight from God's Word as to how the political is setting the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. And Jay's going to give you the phone number how you can get your free copy of Until the Prophecy Newsletter. Just give us a call at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Finally home here at Broadcast Central in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Been on the road, yes, out to the southwest there in Arizona, New Mexico, and into Texas. Then down to Florida for ministry. Came by here in Chattanooga to repack our suitcase and get ready to keep moving again. We'll be doing that next week. And we'll keep you posted as to where we will be so that you can come join us as we study Bible prophecy. Welcome to the second half hour of the broadcast. I want an hour and a half. So this is number two if you were there last half hour. And then the next half hour, you'll have 90 minutes of information that will assist you in understanding how current events around this world are actually setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. Now, the man we use to cover a key region of this world, which would be the European Union, is John Root, who lived there at the headquarters for the EU for over 30 years there in Brussels, Belgium. And I want to talk, John, with you today about the man who has replaced Fulgarini. I think that's the way you pronounce her name. Maybe I'm off a little bit, but 
He is the spokesperson for the foreign activities of the European Union, top diplomat. You might just give us a word about who he is, where he's from, but then I want you to talk about how he is now in Iran and there to lower tensions, if that's going to be a possibility. Who is this top diplomat? Why is he in Iran? Well, Jimmy, the EU has gone through an entire shifting, of course, from the leadership and a complete shaking from the Brexit situation. So uh, at the end of last year, we had new top leaders. All of the positions are by new people now. So the EU Council President is uh, Charles Michel. The EU Commission President is Ursula von der Leyen. And then the EU High Representative for Foreign Affairs and Security Policies, and also holding both positions, the Vice President of the European Commission is Josep Borrell from Spain. He was the former Foreign Minister of Spain. And so uh, I do believe that we're seeing assertiveness from the European Union now directly in this period following Brexit. Of course, they face these existential crises, but they want to be sure that the EU is perceived uh, as strengthening throughout this process. And the Middle East is the playing field where that can be done the easiest. And so the EU will take advantage of situations in the EU in the Middle East to take a strong position. And so this is, to them, they perceive this as a strengthening move. So Borrell has done now meetings in Iran. He, uh, shortly after, he directly warned Israel about further annexations. They're trying to, uh, believe it or not, keep the Iran nuclear agreement. They still are firmly behind keeping that agreement, which is amazing at this period of time. And so we see that together this is a way that the European Union attempts to stand strong on the world stage by taking positions which they truly believe, but in addition they hold the advantage of opposing the United States. And so they're trying to uh, as well have this credibility crisis by taking these stands, the anti-Israel stands, which has been for decades, and use it to strengthen their own position on the world stage. So Joseph Perel has been doing quite a bit of talking this last week. It's the biggest news out of the EU. Yes, and he also warned against the Trump Middle East peace plan. Talk to me about that. Yes, the big issue there, of course, is that the EU has always taken a very strong stand that they will not recognize Israeli sovereignty over territories occupied since 1967. The Trump peace plan does not hold that strict uh, restriction, and it's offered Israel 30% of the areas of Judea and Samaria. And so the EU is being strongly reminded by the Palestinian uh, government that they are to negotiate a two-state solution. Israel has come against this and saying, really, this is the way for the European Union to be ineffective in the entire process. So again, we see a very, very strong polarization. The EU has taken sides, and it's taken the side that we would perceive to be anti-Israel as expected from past. John, do you think this diplomat 
believes that he can resuscitate the two-state solution there in Israel and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? I think that they will use this as the wedge. It's the leverage to give them a seat at the table. Interesting fact we haven't mentioned before, nine of the, of the 27 EU states recognize Palestine. And so the EU cannot have an official position unless that's unanimous. And that's not going to happen, especially with countries in Eastern Europe, which are, uh, take very pro-Israel stands. But nine of the 28 countries do recognize Palestine, but yet, even with that very distinct minority, the EU as a whole has always taken Palestinian side of the issues. Now, isn't that strange? Isn't that strange? So that shows, of course, the non-democratic tendencies or the, the characteristics of the European Union. It's clearly not a democratic system. You know, as we talk about the political with John Rood, there in the European Union, even the issues we have discussed today, looks into the time of the tribulation period when the EU will become the revived Roman Empire. Israel will be a major location and issue to deal with. And what we see is a precursor of how the revived Roman Empire and the state, the Jewish state of Israel, will be operating during that seven-year tribulation period. Always looking at the European Union, the political, as it sets the stage for the prophetic. John, a great report. Thank you for the insight you've given us, the information about this new leadership in the European Union, and we'll have another conversation next week. Thank you. Earlier this week, there was a very special speech that was given there in the Capitol in Washington, D.C. It's referred to and called for by the Constitution, the State of the Union address given by the President on an annual basis. Sam Rohr, who is the spokesperson for the American Pastors Network, I guess he's the president, actually, and he's also the host of Stand in the Gap Today radio and television program, former legislator in the state of Pennsylvania for a number of years in the state Senate. And Sam, I wanted to get you on the line just to help us understand about this State of the Union message that was given by President Trump and, of course, despised by the Speaker of the House evidence in the fact that she tore it up after it was over. You might want to comment on that, but overall, what was your impression of this State of the Union address by the President? Well, Jimmy, I've watched a lot of State of the Union addresses. Let's put it that way. You have too, and I'm sure uh, the listeners uh, right now have as well. My personal sense was I believed that this was a real masterpiece of a presentation from a number of perspectives. The President was able to literally get every issue of important policy established within this address. And he did it without directly at all pointing his fingers at the other side. He used uh, people, illustrations, the, the baby born at 21 months with the mother to bring up the issue of the importance of eradicating late-term uh, abortions, as an example, bringing up the uh, highlighting the individual it was Muskegee Air Force uh, pilot, 100 years old. He and his grandson, who wants to be a part of the Space Force, the old and the young, kind of in a thing. He did that in an extraordinarily 
effective way that allowed the American people to see the actual faces that were behind these policies and see that wonderful response and at the same time contrast it to the fact of the Democrats, most cases, didn't even stand up, uh, didn't applaud at all, and stood in stark contrast. I think it was really quite a visible message. That was a masterpiece part of putting it together. But as far as I'm concerned as well, to Christian people in America, Jimmy, I think that one of the things that the president did, he, he built within this program multiple references to God, to the grace of God, and his support, not only for the sacredness of life, which is in response to a gift from God, as he stated, but he said this, he said, my administration's also defending religious liberty, and that includes the constitutional right to pray in public schools, which he did announce. He said, in America, we do not punish prayer. We don't tear down crosses. We don't ban symbols of faith. We don't muzzle pastors and preachers. In America, we celebrate faith, we cherish religion, and we lift up our voices, and we raise our sights to the glory of God. I think, Jimmy, that was the core message that spoke uh, to those who had ears to hear and eyes to see uh, in regard to that address. I think it was really uh, historic. I have to tell you, Sam, Judy and myself, my wife and myself, were watching it together, and when he made that statement, I started applauding that nobody could hear it except Judy, but uh, that was a great statement he made. And you just mentioned briefly, but the abortion issue was a priority for the president as well. This should excite Christians, should it not? Absolutely, and here again, it was an issue. Everybody knows it's divisive. The other side of the aisle wants to take and make it so it's legal to to kill the just-born, let alone the pre-born. So by showing little Ellie, if people saw little Ellie Schneider was the one that was there, born 21 weeks, six days, and her mother, uh, and he recognized them, really nobodies, but they really were somebodies, because it demonstrated the fact that at 21 weeks of age, a baby is a person and possible to survive. That is in before the last trimester. So when he then went and said, now looking at that, that's why I'm also, as he said, quote, I'm calling upon the members of Congress here to pass legislation, finally banning the late-term abortion of babies. What he did was to show and said, that little baby that is healthy and well would have been one of those casualties. Don't tell me uh, he, without saying it, that you pro-abortion, pro-death people tell me that those little embryos, those little pre-born individuals, are not people. And that was the heart of the argument. Then he went on and he said, whether we're Democrat or Republican or Independent, surely we must all agree that every human life is a sacred gift from God which now takes and makes this issue a God issue, a moral issue, uh, a matter of sacredness as a part of it, which ties it to the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence. But the heart of the whole pro-death issue, uh, Jimmy, is that they will make the case that the pre-born individual is not a person. And that's the whole basis of their argument. It's not a person. Well, he just said, look, it is a person, mm. 
And matter of fact, every life is a gift from God, and every life is sacred because it is a person. It was a great, great statement and uh, illustration. Yes, it certainly was. I don't care what you think about Donald Trump, hate him or love him. I, as an individual voter, would say that's my number one issue. Where does a man stand, or the leader, whoever it is, man or woman, stand on abortion? So that was key. Another of my top issues is the state of Israel. He said he has a commitment to the Jewish state and the Middle East peace plan. Now, again, I'm not sure the plan's going to work, but his commitment to Israel is almost absolute. Well, it is. And again, that's just another one of those points. Everyone who is a patriotic American, certainly a Christian American, uh, all of those issues, patriotism, life, he mentioned the Second Amendment. He mentioned that. He talked about the pilgrims. He talked about the founders. Brought everybody into this picture. And he mentioned Israel and the peace plan because that has been a centerpiece of what this president and this administration has done. And he mentioned it. He said we have an obligation to pursue peace in the Middle East. And I believe that we do. I think he does. But at the end of the day, I think you're right. It's not going to happen. But to pursue it and to acknowledge Israel in every way possible, to build them up, to recognize the importance of the state of Israel, the primacy of the capital of Israel being Jerusalem, uh, the fact that Judeo-Samaria should belong to them, and he didn't give it all to them and recommend it in this place, but he's going that direction. Uh, Jimmy, I thought that these things, again, laid them on the table, laid out the definition, laid out the priorities, and I think the thing to me that uh, was particularly good is that as I listened to this speech, unlike many in the past, on both sides, presidents of both sides of the aisle in the past, I believe that the statements that were made here did not ring hollow. They actually were consistent with what he has said from the beginning. He restated them in this presentation and address, and he said, we're going to continue doing this. I think it gives a level of confidence and consistency to the American people, which I think exactly what a leader ought to do, and that includes Israel and what we do in regard as a nation to Israel and God's people there. And just a quick thought, Sam. We don't want to belinger this at all, but uh, what do you think about Nancy Pelosi's show of distaste, or hatred, actually, for the president as she tore up the manuscript? Well, other than the fact that a Speaker of the House would show such disdain for the honor of the House and for the importance of uh, the legacy of the institution, the founding of the institution, the greatness of the whole concept of representative government that we have with the executive branch and the judicial branch and the legislative branch all represented in that room at the same time. That's the brilliance of our founders and a constitutional republic. She took, and basically by tearing that up, She dishonored all of those things, and she dishonored every person and every issue that the president highlighted in that address. And I think the thing that happened there, Jimmy, by the fact that she did it so uh, deliberately, she tore, uh, she put the speech into three parts, and Mm -hmm. she tore three different sections, all symbolic, very questionable, and it was done on national TV that 34 million people estimated were watching that. I think she thought she was going to make a good point. I think what she did was she perhaps drove a stake into her position 
as the Speaker of the House. And I would pretty much agree with, actually, what everything you had to say there. Sam, thank you so much. I wanted to have this because God brought government into existence. He uses government to accomplish his will, and I wanted this conversation. Thank you so much, Sam. Hey, we'll see you on the radio. See you later, Jimmy. Very important report from Sam Rohr as he gave us his evaluation of the State of the Union address. We did that together on his program on Wednesday, but now the opportunity for me to have Sam come to this broadcast table, our microphones, and repeat some of those very important issues that the president brought to our attention in that State of the Union message. Well, the vote has taken place on Thursday, and that was the vote to either acquit or call guilty the president and impeach him, take him out of office. It was, of course, the vote that everybody thought would be the case, and, of course, they did not even reach near the number that they would need to take the president out of office. There was all Republicans and all Democrats, with one exception, on one of the counts for impeachment out of the House of Representatives, Senator Romney of Utah came out and he voted that the president should be guilty on that, not guilty on the other count. Don't want to necessarily go after the political decision by Senator Romney, but I do want to talk about Romney and from a perspective that he said he was a religious man. He had a commitment to God and that's why he made his vote. Now, on the line with me right now is Ed Decker. He's a former Mormon. He has done much study after he came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Uh, About the Mormon religion goes in-depth with a number of books. He wrote the book with David Hunt, God Maker. And indeed, this is an excellent book. You need to get a copy of it. I do believe it's still in print. If not, go to a old bookstore and find it there. It's a very important read. Ed, thank you for joining me. I said that Senator Romney said he was a religious man, but he did never say, as I heard him, that he was a Christian. So my big question is, can a Mormon actually be a born-again, blood-bought, Bible-believing Christian? Well, they don't understand the, the, the terms. And, and again, you've got to understand that the Mormons have what, what I call Mormon-speak. When they say God, we, we believe and we understand God to be the creator of the whole universe. In Mormonism, he's a man who was made God because he was obedient to the laws and ordinances of the gospel of the church on his planet. And when he died, he was then raised to godhood and lives on a planet near the great star Kolob with his many goddess wives. And he is god of this world. He's a man. And Mitt Romney, when he says that uh, he's a religious man uh, and that he believes in God, he believes in this man-god who is judging him uh, to determine if he's righteous enough to become a god himself. Mitt Romney went through a Mormon temple ritual, just like I did, and he swore a blood oath uh, to have his throat slit from ear to ear uh, and his tongue ripped out to to be obedient to the laws and ordinances of this God. I'm kind of paraphrasing this because it's just too much detail, but he, he, he swore 
everything and all he has to the kingdom of God, which is the Mormon kingdom, which believes that the Constitution of the United States will hang by a thread, and they have a plan for America that it will be taken over by the elders of the Mormon Church. So he, he, he uses the terminology that sounds almost okay, but we're dealing with science fiction stuff here. And we're certainly not talking about, as you and I would believe, that Jesus Christ, the Son of the true God, the biblical God, is the one that we must put our trust in after we admit we're sinners and need a Savior. And Jesus Christ accomplished that on the cross when he was crucified, buried, and then resurrected from the dead. Well, that's not, what, that's not what Mitt Romney believes or any believing Mormon. I mean, they believe that Jesus... Christ is the is the brother, literal brother of Lucifer, and that the Council of Gods, prior to peopling this earth, had a big vote, and Jesus was elected to be our Savior by a vote. Of course, Lucifer got angry, and a third of all the the, the children of God in in this planet near Kolob went into rebellion, and they are bad devils and the, the uh, demons who come to harass the good people. But but he believes in his godhood. Jesus came to earth, according to Mormonism, when he died, he didn't die to save our sins. He suffered for our sins in Gethsemane, the Mormons teach, in order to allow us to uh, be obedient to the Mormon God and the Mormon Church. And there Jesus gives us resurrection so that we can be judged for our works in order to us take our works, and that's our covering, and if our works are better than our sins, then we get to go to one of three degrees of glory. The highest, of course, is the celestial kingdom, where Mitt plans on becoming a god and giving this many goddess wives. Uh, you got to remember that Mitt grew up in a polygamous colony in in Mexico, and so he, he he grew up as a fundamentalist, these are unbelievable uh, hard rock Mormonism. They believe in blood atonement. You recently, you saw a bunch of murders down in the same colonies where Mitt grew up in Mexico, when when uh, I think it was three vans full of uh, Mormon, uh, well, those Mormons, the fundamentalist Mormons, being uh, machine gunned down. That's where Mitt grew up, and, and that's his background, and that's his philosophy. I truly believe that Mitt took this position to vote against the President of the United States. I expect him to be making a push to change his, uh, from being a Republican to a Democrat or an Independent, and actually hoping that he'll be put in place to save the nation in this election. I think he's, he's, I think he's running for President right now. So then you believe that the Mormons have a very important interest in American politics, and Mitt Romney is on his way to try to accomplish the goals of the Mormon Church. Is that correct? Absolutely, and he tried that in 2007 and 2008, and then, and then uh, he got wiped out by Obama. But the point of it is is that they actually have a temple in, in Washington, D.C., and in the early writings about, about the temple being built in D.C., for the Mormon president to preside, they believe that that temple in Washington, D.C. will be where the Mormon headship of our country will preside over our nation. And that's why it's, in, that's why it's there, and the design for it is there. You sent me one of the articles that you have written, 
as it relates to the Mormons and politics. You said a number of the young Mormons, after they've done their two years of missionary work, they come back and apply for the CIA. There are a number of those Mormon young people that are now members of the CIA, but they try to get involved in the governmental operation of the United States. How does that manifest today? Well, you're going to find Mormons in the FBI. You're going to find them heavily in the CIA and heavily in the Secret Service. And and there's a reason for it. I have to go back a number of years ago in the 80s when the Mormons had infiltrated with the uh, with the CIA. The CIA was going down into Chile in particular, where I was uh, ministering. They had brought down a number of CIA operatives who were a former Mormon missionaries, and so they knew the game, they knew the barrio languages, they knew the ins and outs. Yes, the CIA, the FBI, the Secret Service, and many other organizations within the government agencies, they're heavily filled with Mormons because the Mormons want their people in place when it's takeover time. I just wanted to have this conversation with Ed Decker because not to go after Mitt Romney for his vote. He has to vote the way he sees he should vote, so I give him that respect and honor to be able to do that. But I did want to get information about Mitt Romney, background information that we need to know. Ed, thank you so much for your research, thank you for your writing, and thank you for joining us today to help us understand Mitt Romney and maybe some of his political decisions. Appreciate it. We'll talk again soon. Thank you so much for having me on, and I look forward to seeing you again. You're doing a great job. Very informative report from Ed Decker. Maybe information you have never heard about Mitt Romney. Well, we're going to have to take a break right now. When we come back, David James is on the other side of the break, and he'll have a conversation with me about some of the Democrat candidates and their agenda should they be elected president. All ahead, right here on Prophecy Today. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. We're moving into the last half hour. Thank you so much for staying with us until this point. One more broadcast partner ahead, David James, We're going to be talking about the home going of Dr. John Whitcomb, and then we'll look at some of the candidates in the Democratic Party who have an agenda contradictory to the Word of God. You don't want to miss that conversation. Be sure to go by my website, prophecytoday.com, after the broadcast and answer my poll question. It'll be located on the home page, left-hand column, if you scroll down. Here's the question. Do you believe that in the State of the Union address, President Trump gave the voters reasons to vote for him when he mentioned the right of life for the unborn, his Middle East peace plan, and his stand against the radical Islamist in our world today. Please answer that poll question. Be very interested to see how you respond to it. And, of course, there's many, many different items on our website, prophecytoday.com, that will assist you in your study of Bible prophecy. We now bring to these microphones David James, 
David and I have a conversation on a weekly basis, and we look at issues that the body of Christ will be confronted with so that they may have to be driven to the Bible, I would hope, and find out what it has to say about this particular issue so that their walk with the Lord will be consistent with what God's Word is. David and I talk about those issues and the biblical input on all of the issues. So glad to have David with you. And David, I guess we connect this week just while you're getting ready to leave for your second international trip of the year. That's right. Uh, I think this is my eighth trip to Uganda altogether and my sixth time to teach at the Word of Life Bible Institute. And as I have for the past five years, I'll be teaching God's plan through the ages and signs, wonders, and the charismatic movement. And this is currently the Word of Life Bible Institute for the entire continent of Africa. And so in addition to students from Uganda, I'll also be teaching students from Zimbabwe, Kenya, Malawi, Congo, Rwanda, and South Sudan. So it's an amazing opportunity. And then after that, I'll be traveling to Ethiopia to be one of three main speakers in a five-day conference, which will be the second major event that Word of Life has conducted in that country, as it's a fairly new ministry. Well, that's a great ministry that has been laid out with your agenda and what's going to take place in the very near future, your itinerary. I'm excited. Folks, be praying for David and these other participants in these conferences, reaching basically the entire continent of Africa. Well, David, before we get to our main topic for the week, I wanted to briefly discuss the homegoing, this man gone into the heavenlies, another giant of the faith, Dr. John Wickham. I was very impressed with this man's life. I had a number of occasions where he and I were the speakers in conferences. I had him on the radio for a number of years doing something similar to what you and I are doing, David. But I also know that he had an impact on your life, especially as a young believer there in your 20s. That's right, Jimmy. My wife and I were saved in the summer of 1984 at the age of 26, and a few months later I read The Genesis Flood, which was a groundbreaking book that was co-authored Dr. Whitcomb and Henry Morris. And prior to being saved, I would say I was basically agnostic, and of course I fully believed in evolution. And four years earlier, I'd received my bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from one of the top schools in the country, and my view of the Bible was that it was was just a collection of myths written by primitive people to explain the world around them. However, when the Lord saved me, He radically changed my heart and mind, and I immediately accepted the creation and flood as recorded in Genesis as being literally true, even before reading Dr. Whitcomb's book. But because of my background in science and engineering, I was struck by the plausibility of the arguments in the Genesis flood, and I've been a young earth creationist ever since the past 35-some years. Then the next year, in 1985, Karen and I had left our jobs and enrolled as students in the Word of Life Bible Institute in upstate New York, and we had the wonderful privilege of Dr. Whitcomb teaching us Genesis 1 through 11. And, and as I've read uh, many tributes to him on social media, the three characteristics that seem to best describe him are that uh, he was a godly man, a biblical scholar, and a humble servant, and mm. that's certainly how I knew him. Oh, that's the way I knew him also. We're going to miss him. Dr. John is in the heavenlies, and uh, I'm looking forward to fellowship with him 
had a lot of time here, but in the last couple of years, he's not been in good health. And uh, I would imagine almost a joy for him to walk into the heavenlies and join with his Savior, Jesus Christ. He'll be greatly missed, that's for sure. One of the news, major news stories this week, David, has been the fiasco with the Iowa caucuses. And among several memorable moments is a video from last Monday evening that's gone viral. And this is a video in which a caucus goer first finds out that Democratic candidate for president Pete Buttigieg is gay and is in a same-sex relationship. Well, that video has received some 3 million views on Twitter, and I have to admit that I thought it was kind of a weird situation that this woman first found out that Buttigieg was gay after she'd already cast her caucus vote, and then she asked the campaign worker, the precinct captain, if she could withdraw her vote. And one reason it was sort of strange was that Mayor Pete being gay, that has been common knowledge for a long, long time, and this really makes me wonder just how much this lady really knows about about what he or any of the other candidates believe and stand for. So for some of our listeners who may not be aware of exactly what happened, I thought it might be helpful to just go over uh, briefly a portion of the transcript of that exchange. First, the caucus goer says, are you saying he has a same-sex partner? Are you kidding? Then I don't want anybody like that in the White House. So can I have my card back? Then the precinct captain for Buttigieg says, the whole point of it is, though, he's a human being, right? Just like you and me, and it really shouldn't matter. Then the first lady says, why does it say in the Bible that a man should marry a woman then? To which the campaign worker says, I totally respect your viewpoint on this. I so totally do, but I think that we were not around when the Bible was written. And another interesting thing about this exchange is that both women clearly identify themselves as Christians. Yes, that is a bit disturbing. Well, let's then uh, think about this last point for a moment. As I've heard you say before, the elections involve voting for actually a platform more than just an individual. Here you have two Christians participating in a caucus to determine a Democratic challenger for the president in November. Now talk to me about that. Well, while there are Democrats and Republicans and independents with hardly any daylight between them in terms of personal beliefs or philosophy of governance or conduct and worldviews, there are some significant differences when it comes to the platforms they've aligned themselves with. Uh, let's just think about some of these major platform differences, and I've adapted these from a website called Diffen, D-I-F-F-E-N dot com, and, and also just as a reminder, these are broad generalities with exceptions on both sides. So, for example, philosophically, the Democrats tend to be socially and culturally liberal, while Republicans tend to be socially and culturally conservative. Theologically, Democrats, I would say, tend to be more liberal and progressive in their thinking with regard to the Bible and its teaching, whereas Republicans broadly, again, there are exceptions, broadly tend to be more conservative. 
Concerning the view of the Constitution, Democrats tend to adapt the interpretation of the Constitution to changing social values, especially the First and Second Amendments, whereas Republicans strive to apply the original intent of the framers to present issues. In other words, they tend to be originalists. Concerning political values, Democrats would tend to argue that we should be ruled by the majority, a democracy, whereas Republicans would understand we're governed by elected representatives who establish and execute laws, thus making us a republic. Concerning the stance on marriage, most Democrats would support gay marriage, including hormone therapy and exposing children to transgenderism, whereas Republicans would tend to oppose this on the whole. And concerning abortion, Democrats would want to liberalize Roe versus Wade, even including, for some of them, post-birth abortions, as they call it, whereas Republicans tend to want to further restrict or repeal Roe versus Wade and recast this as a state's rights issue. So thinking about these two ladies in Iowa who identify as Christians, I have to wonder how much they really understand the platform of the party they're hoping to get elected in November. For example, can a Christian support Buttigieg since he's gay and knowing that he's publicly stated that life begins when a breath is taken at birth? Wow. Very, very provoking thought. David, don't you think that this whole situation is a sad commentary on where we are as a nation, given that we now openly talk about things that were once only spoken of in privacy, and even then with a measure of embarrassment? I agree, Jimmy, and there's almost nothing that's off-limits anymore. We, we don't even think in terms of whether something is acceptable to be spoken of in quote-unquote polite company. This ground was lost long ago in movies, and it was in television shows, and now even commercials have completely crossed into openly talking about shameful things in the most crass of ways. Uh, I'm sure you've noticed uh, that more and more commercials are going out of their way to show same-sex couples, and we've long grown insensitive to things related to personal hygiene products or underwear or lingerie and even ED treatments. And of course, there was the Super Bowl halftime show with its pole dancing and stripper moves by Shakira and J-Lo. You know, things have changed a lot since the first celebrity performed at Super Bowl Four, which was Carol Channing. And that halftime show also included a school marching band and a reenactment of the Battle of New Orleans. And, and the point is this, Jimmy, standards of morality and decency have declined so dramatically in our life times, too many things just no longer seem to bother us much, let alone shock us as a nation. Things like abortion on demand for any reason or an openly homosexual man running for president with the possibility that the nation's first husband will be married to a man rather than a woman. And none of this is an attempt to justify the failings of the current president or elected officials. This is just the situation in which we live. Yes, it is. You know, in your course, Current Theological Issues, David, I know that you have a section on the LGBT agenda, and we've talked about that on this program before. Would you not say that Americans and even evangelicals also are becoming more acceptable of these deviant lifestyles? And so then what would you say to help your students think through this for themselves? 
Well, attitudes are definitely changing. Unfortunately, uh, just as with the precinct captain in Iowa, the issue is being reframed in terms of love rather than truth, and many are falling for it. According to the Pew Research Center in 2004, Americans opposed same-sex marriage by a margin of 60 to 31. But by last year, those numbers had reversed. And among Democrats versus Republicans, those numbers are 81 to 37 in favor. Uh, And among the non-religious, 79% currently favor same-sex marriage. However, even among white evangelicals, the number supporting same-sex marriage has grown from just 11% in 2004 to 29% today. Now, what? how do I respond to this? Just briefly. First, God created Adam and Eve to have a one-flesh relationship, something that's not possible outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. In Genesis 19, God destroyed five entire cities and their inhabitants for rampant homosexuality. And even though we're no longer under the law of God, we do have to keep his mind on the matter, because in the context where he condemns same-sex relationships as worthy of death, he's also included laws prohibiting things like incest and bestiality, so we know his mind. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that such were some of you, meaning adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, and so on, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. And God's Word is absolute on the subject. David, thank you for this conversation and the research you did for it, and also for reminding us about the homegoing of Dr. John Wickham. Let me encourage everybody to be praying for his precious wife, who is still here on the earth. I'm sure anxious to go be with him. Thank you, David, and we'll have another conversation next week. Thanks, Jimmy. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I'm going to open the Bible. We are going to thank through the issues our broadcast partners have brought to our attention. We'll see what God's Word has to say about them. That's all ahead, right here on Prophecy Today. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in his scriptures for 
for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. On Prophecy Today weekend, our broadcast partners gave us in-depth information about the current events that we see unfolding in our world. You must remember these events are setting the stage for the prophetic scenario that is found in God's Word to be fulfilled. Hearing these reports will give you more behind the headlines, and it should alert us to the urgency of the moment in which we're living, and also the warning we should give to our friends and family that are not born-again Christians. This is a way of opening a door to talk to your friends and loved ones about their relationship with Jesus Christ. By the way, if you missed any of our broadcast partners and the conversations that I had with them today, you can go to my website, prophecytoday.com, then over to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. There you can listen to any and all of the reports from my broadcast partners. Please tell a friend about these reports and where they can find them to be able to listen to them as well. This week on our broadcast, we had all six of our broadcast partners with very important information. For example, Ken Timmerman. We talked about the Palestinian effort as they are gathering United Nations support to reject Trump's peace plan. You know, the Palestinians and the United Nations will be alive during the tribulation period. They have partners since the establishment of both the Palestinian entity and the United Nations, and most of the resolutions that are passed in the United Nations are anti-Israel, pro Palestinians. By the way, I said they would be alive throughout the tribulation period. Well, they come to an end. The United Nations, which is a one-world government operation, will be destroyed as foretold in Revelation chapter 18 in one hour. This worldwide governmental operation will be destroyed. And the Palestinians, check out Obadiah, Verses 15 to 18, they will be as if they have never been. David Dolan gives us our Middle East news update every week. He is a longtime journalist in that very important region of the world, over 35 years, and we're so grateful to have him on our broadcast team. David told us of the Palestinian violence uptick on the Temple Mount, which was actually for the purpose of trying to stop the implementation of the Trump peace plan. Now, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict has been unfolding for the last 4,000 years when you go back and look at the background. That's since Genesis chapter 25. It has continued down through the ages until today and will continue until the Messiah, Jesus Christ, comes back and allows the Jews to wipe out the Amalekites. By the way, the Amalekites, they were the offspring of Esau's grandson, Amalek. 
the Palestinian people of today will be destroyed. That's when Jesus allows the Jews to fight their last fight, as foretold in, again, the book of Obadiah, verses 15 to 18. John Rood is the man that we have selected to keep us up to date on the European Union, and John brought to the table on this broadcast that the European Union is working against the peace plan that has been put forth by President Trump. All of us must stop to remember that the European Union is at least the infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire, a major player for the tribulation period. And as the revived Roman Empire, as foretold in Daniel chapter 2, the ten toes, and Daniel 7, the ten horns, as they appear, they will go against the Jewish people, the Jewish state of Israel, trying to destroy them However, the revived Roman Empire will ultimately be destroyed. Sam Rohr has a background as a political leader in the State Senate of Pennsylvania, and he came with an analysis of the State of the Union address from President Trump and then Speaker Pelosi's ignorant act of tearing up the manuscript for the State of the Union address. You must not forget God brought human government into power to lead the nations in the way the Lord wants them to go. That's Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6. And God will continue to use human government in the end times as well. Revelation chapter 17 and verse 17. Ed Decker came to the broadcast table with background information on Mitt Romney, who actually believes he will become a god. Mormonism is a cult. It's a false religion. No human being becomes a god. Mormonism is a part of the worldwide false religion that is foretold in Revelation chapter 17. Read that chapter to understand what will happen to all false religion. David James reported to us the home going of Dr. John Whitcomb, who was the author of the Genesis Flood, a great friend, a great theologian, a great brother in Jesus Christ. Pray for his family, those who are left after his home going. And also then, David and I talked about the LGBT agenda and the lifestyle of a Democratic candidate for president. Please read, if you will, what God says and what he does with the LGBT community and agenda. He does that in Genesis chapter 19, where he wipes out a LGBT society, and then in Romans chapter 1, and he tells you what his thoughts, God's thoughts, are about this community. By the way, if you missed any of our broadcast partners and the conversations that I had with them today, you can go to my website, prophecytoday.com, then over to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. There you can listen to any and all of the reports from my broadcast partners. And these reports are evidence that we are in the time for the rapture of the church. There's no prophecy to be fulfilled before the rapture. It can actually happen at any moment, even today. And having said that, nothing left for me to say, except let's keep looking up 
until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Thank you.